0: Hello, this is Peggy Joyce-Ruth. Welcome to our podcast and hope you enjoy this teaching. If you would like to listen to more in-depth teachings, please sign up for our Psalm 91 family at PeggyJoyceRuth.org. Have you ever noticed how some words that have to do with a bad human behavior are more acceptable and more tolerable than others? You know, we can hear words like anger or we can hear words like fear or frustration or depression or even rejection. And most people will admit, yes, I've had my bout with all of those at one time or another. Most people will admit that. But there is one behavioral emotion that no one likes to admit. See if you don't think I'm right. Is there anyone who is not just a little bit offended when you're being accused of being in self-pity? Doesn't that just kind of do something to you when somebody says, you're just having a pity party? You know, you're just feeling sorry for yourself. You know, there's something about that that makes you just want to, you know, wallop them and say, no, I am not having a pity party. (laughs) And and everything in you just wants to rise up because no one likes to be accused of self-pity. Now, when Jack and I first started dating, he had an elderly uncle named Hugo. Hugo worked at the Pepsi plant with his dad and, Hugo would have been a textbook example of a classic case of extreme self-pity. Now, rejection and self-rejection are cousins to self-pity, and so Hugo would spend half the time feeling like people were rejecting him, and then he'd spend the other half the time rejecting himself. And, of course, that was all tied up in this one big package of self-pity. Now, self-pity is like a magnet. It really is. It's a magnet in the spiritual realm. And it will literally draw things to you in the spiritual realm to go wrong. Now, when I was thinking of Hugo, I couldn't help but think about one episode that would make a slapstick comedy movie without even a rehearsal. Hugo worked for Jack's dad, who owned the Pepsi plant. And Hugo was the older brother. So it really made him feel sorry for himself that he had to take orders from his little kid brother. and Mr. Ruth leaned heavily on Jack, and so Hugo was always getting his feelings hurt because he was never allowed to make any of the decisions. So he just kept feeling sorrier and sorrier for himself. And one day, Jack and his dad were out of the plant, and a liquid soap salesman came by. And so Hugo took it upon himself to buy a 55-gallon barrel of liquid hand soap. Now, that was enough soap that was going to last until the rapture. And, um, of course, that was back in the days before even the soap dispensers. And so he would wash out all these little cans, all of his cans where he would open beans and different things. And he would wash out those little cans and he would fill them with soap. And he had a little soap can by the lavatories and he had them by the tire rack. And he had them in all the restrooms and even by the drinking fountain. But, you know, the, the employees hated it because they would dip their hands down in that can of soap and, of course, the grease off their hands would get in that pink soap and it would look nasty and goopy. and So that would mean that Hugo was always having to trade out those soap cans. He was constantly having to do that. And everybody teased him and they all called it Hugo's Soap. Now, they'd been using on this soap for, oh, several years. And all of a sudden, the barrel started rusting out. of course, when that started happening, the floor started getting real gummy, and it was just, it was a big mess. Now, this was also back in the days before the throwaway bottles. And so back then, you would pay a deposit on your glass bottle, and of course, then later you'd bring your bottles back to the plant and get your money back. And then the plant would run those bottles, those returnable bottles, would run them through this huge bottle washer. Now, this bottle washer was about 5 feet wide, and it was about 10 feet tall, and it was about 30 feet long. So we're talking about a huge piece of machinery. And so one day, when no one was looking, Hugo decided that he was going to get rid of that soap once and for all, and so he poured that soap, the rest of that soap, in that bottle washer. And he was going to get rid of it, and no one was going to know. Now, of course, they make a special soap for those bottle washers, you know, like they make soap for your dishwasher that doesn't suds. And so everything was fine on that particular day until the high pressure pump agitator came on. And when that came on, I'm going to tell you what, soap suds came out of every crack and every crevice of that huge bottle washer. It looked like that bottle washer just exploded into these little soap bubbles. And it looked exactly like a comedy movie. That's what it looked like. And Even the clear water rinse compartment now filled up with bubbles, and so as these bottles came down the conveyor belt, they were supposed to come out sparkling clean, and as they went down the conveyor belt, they were just little blobs of soap bubbles. You couldn't even see the bottles. And it was so bad, and then all of a sudden, the worst thing in the world could have happened, that soap started causing the paint to peel off the machine because it went over. And so it peeled the paint off, down to the metal, inside and out. And everything had to be scraped. Everything had to be repainted. And, of course, it fell on poor Hugo to have to do all that scraping and painting. And all of the teasing started up again. And so he got deeper and deeper into self-pity. Now, I found out later that he was one of seven children. And for some reason, I don't know why, but... For some reason, his mother and dad had felt sorry for him when he was growing up. And so he picked up on that pity and it became a way of life. And anytime you thought of Hugo, you thought of someone who was in self-pity. You just thought of him that way. And that way of life plagued him every day of his existence. Now, there's probably no one who's been totally untouched by this unpleasant enemy that we call self-pity. It's a problem that almost everyone has to deal with at least one time or another. Now, it may be just a moment of our feeling sorry for ourselves, or it could become a destructive way of life. And if we allow it to become a destructive way of life, then it leads to chronic depression, it leads to despair and hopelessness, and finally even death. And a lot of people operate in this self-pity, and they don't even know it. They're not even realizing that that's what they're operating in. So what we're going to do today, we're going to look at some ways in which we can recognize it in ourselves and recognize it in our children and our grandchildren. Because I'm going to tell you what, we are doing our children a wonderful favor when we do. Because if it ever becomes a stronghold of self-pity, like we mentioned in Hugo's case, then we're going to find that it usually started in childhood. usually starts there and continues to grow Now, if we can recognize it and if we can stop it early on, then we're going to save ourselves or our children a lifetime of heartache. Now, I want us to recognize some obvious earmarks that characterize self-pity, and then we're going to look at some steps where we can get set free. Now, sometimes just in the recognizing of something, all of a sudden we get set free. You know, there's been times when if I recognize a spirit that's harassing me or something that I'm doing incorrectly, just knowing it causes me to watch for it. And so that's also what I'm hoping for today. I'm believing as we hear some of these things that we'll remember this in a humorous way and it'll make us stop and instead of feeling sorrier for ourselves, that we'll stop and we'll say, no, I want rid of this. I don't want this in my life. Now, Satan just loves his little self-pity spirits because self-pity now is one of the big core reasons why So many people stay in their same destructive patterns all of their lives. And the reason is because self-pity keeps a person immobile. You know, it keeps that person always focused inward. And as long as we're focused inward, we're going to have defeat in our lives. Now, you take away the self-pity and the only way to go is up because self-pity keeps us at the bottom of the barrel, still looking down. Now, I looked up the word self-pity and this is the definition. It's a sorrow felt for one's own suffering or one's own misfortune, it's a regret or a sympathy for oneself. Now, sometimes the misfortune is real. Sometimes it's imagined. But either way, we're going to find out that if we hang on to it, more misfortune then is attracted to us the longer we stay in it. And that's what I want you to remember, that it is a spiritual magnet. It's just exactly like a spiritual magnet. Now, you need to write these characteristics of self-pity down as we go along. You're going to find out that self-pity will always accompany a victim spirit. For example, if a person has been victimized by anything, whether it be rape or whether it be sickness or abuse or maybe financial disaster, whatever it is that has victimized them, as long as they continue to see themselves as a victim, then self-pity is always going to be there. Now, most people who go through what the world calls a middle-age crisis will always find that there's a spirit of self-pity present. Now, it may be subtle, but self-pity was there instigating those subtle mind thoughts that led to the middle-age crisis. Thoughts like, well, life's passing me by. Or I'm not getting any younger and I haven't accomplished anything. Well, if I'm going to accomplish something, I'm going to have to hurry because I'm losing time fast. Or maybe thoughts like, I'm stuck with a mate that doesn't love me. Or I'm stuck with a mate that I don't love. Okay, very few people ever think to look for self-pity when there's a middle-aged crisis. Because usually by the time that the crisis is recognized, the one that's going through that crisis is all spruced up. And they've got new clothes. And they've got a new hairdo. and, And usually a recent weight loss. And they look great. So no one even thinks about self-pity because it doesn't look or sound like self-pity by that time. But, you know, self-pity was the culprit that started those mind thoughts back there before they put on this new look. Now, just a little side note here. Anyone who begins to feel defeated and depressed around the midpoint in life, that person needs to examine their vision. Now, I'm not talking about physical vision, but they need to start examining themselves and ask themselves, you know, what exactly is my goal in life? You know, is it just to get my bills paid? Is it to retire early and maybe retire with a little nest egg? You know, not that those things are wrong in and of themselves, but if that's all there is to one's vision, then that person is going to be a prime candidate for self-pity and a prime candidate for a middle-aged crisis because, see, they don't have any real purpose in life. That's not enough to keep a person going. That's not enough to give them a reason for living. Now, the one who keeps God's vision in his life alive and going will never, and I repeat, that person will never have a middle-aged crisis. Because when we're busy with the work of the kingdom, then there's not any time to have all this negative stuff going on. There's not time. Because God's keeping us too busy. Okay, let's move on to relationships. Now, there are some areas of flesh... That we might indulge in that would affect no one but ourselves. But I'm going to tell you what. If you're in self-pity, you're going to find out that it affects every member of the family. No way to be in self-pity without everyone around you, everyone with whom you're close, being affected by it. Now I want you to turn to Luke chapter 15. Now there's probably no bigger cross to bear than having to live with a family member that's in big time self-pity. And I want us to look here at a family situation where self-pity affected every member, including the servants. Okay, Luke chapter 15, starting with verse 11. And Jesus said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And so the father divided his wealth between the two of them. Okay, now I want you to notice that the older brother got just as much as the younger brother got. But now this younger brother goes off into a life of sin, and this would have eventually led to death. So it's no wonder now that the father is just overjoyed. He's beside himself in joy when he sees then his younger son coming home. And so in verse 20, the young son got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. And he ran and embraced his son and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Okay, now, he certainly doesn't come back in arrogance. He comes back in humility, he comes back in repentance, and he just says, Father, I just want to be a servant. But the father says, no, he puts the robe on him, he puts a ring on his finger, and he gives him a big party. And so down in verse 24, he says that he's going to give the party, because this son of mine was dead... But he's come to life again. He was lost, but he's been found, and they began to be merry. Okay, now I want us to look at the reaction of this older brother. And this is the next character trait that I want you to notice, because this older brother now, we're going to see a lot of selfishness on his part, and that's a big-time characteristic of self-pity. The reason is because self-pity is always centered on self. That's why we call it self-pity. You know, how am I going to be affected by everything that's going on? Now, this is a real clue. Okay, verse 25. The older brother was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants, and he began inquiring what these things might be. And so the servant said to him, Your brother's come home, and your father has killed a fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry. And he was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began entreating him. Okay, now remember that I said self-pity is never covered over and hidden from those with whom we're close. Because it affects everybody around us. Now this older brother, he's feeling very sorry for himself. He thinks how he's been so mistreated and how unfair it is. And so he's not willing to go into the house. I want you to notice though... But self-pity will always do something to attract attention so that the other people will see the injustice that's been done. So we're going to find out that self-pity is never silent. You know, have you ever seen a child refuse to eat because they think they've been mistreated? Even when they're hungry. And they're mistreated so they're not even going to come to the table. They're not going to eat. Now, self-pity does that so that everyone will notice how badly they've been treated. Now, unfortunately... This is not just children that will do this. You know, I've known women who will cook the meal and even serve the meal but refuse to eat in protest to some injustice. And men, many times, the husbands will pout and they'll refuse to come to the table to eat just because, you know, of something that's been done to them. So I want you to think about the irony of that. I want you to think about how ridiculous that is because a spirit of self-pity is indeed a spirit of self-destruct because why on earth would a person who feels that they've already been mistreated, why would they decide to mistreat themselves more in an effort to punish the other person? You know, that doesn't make any sense. You would think that they would go in and say, well, I'm going to eat all these good things and I'm going to get what's coming to me. But it doesn't make any sense the way self-pity works. It'd make a lot more sense if that older brother had just marched in and had said, I'm going to have the party of my life. I deserve it. I've been working for my father. And if he's going to give a party, then I'm going to enjoy it too. I'm going to eat all this good food and I'm going to have fun with my friends. See, that would be the logical way of doing things. But instead, we have to ask ourselves, why would we punish ourselves for an injustice that we thought was done to us? You know, why would we do that? It doesn't make sense, but that's exactly how self-pity works. Now, so far, we've named rejection, we've named self-rejection, we've named selfishness, we've named hurt, we've named a victim spirit, we've named self-destruction, and we certainly see jealousy here at work with the older brother, and we see a spirit of attention. Now, I want you to notice down in verse 28 that this self-pity finally gets his father's attention. And so the father comes out and starts begging him to come into the party. Now, I want you to notice that a self-pity spirit will attract attention, and it likes that attention in a morbid sort of way, while at the same time it's saying, I don't want the attention. Have you ever noticed that someone will attract attention to themselves, and then at the same time they'll be saying, go away, leave me alone, I don't want to talk to anyone. But see, they've attracted that attention to begin with. Well, That's exactly what happens with self-pity. And this older brother wouldn't go in, but he made sure that his father knew that he was out there on the porch and that he was having a hard time. Okay, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 10. Now, I want to see also how self-pity will also manifest in a martyr spirit. Okay, chapter 10, starting with verse 38. Now, as they were traveling along, Jesus entered a certain village... And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister named Mary who moreover was listening to the Lord's words and she was seated at his feet. But Martha was distracted with all of her preparations and she came up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Doesn't that sound like a self-pity statement? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things. But only a few things are necessary, really only one, for Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. Okay, now this example is probably not a case of chronic self-pity. It may be more of what happens to all of us when from time to time we think we've been temporarily mistreated, we're temporarily in self-pity. So I call this one the temporary self-pity attack. But I want you to notice the martyr spirit here in Martha. Now, Martha felt all mistreated. She felt like she had been abused because all the work had piled up on her and she was having to do everything and no one seemed to care. Her sister didn't seem to care. Now, I think every woman has probably experienced this at one time or another. And instead of falling into this, we need to ask ourselves, you know, what should Martha have done? Okay, she could have decided to join the rest of the group. She could have decided to have fun and listen to the master and get in on all this wonderful teaching. And then later, when everyone said, oh, I'm getting hungry, I want some food, then get them all to pitch in and work together to get the meal ready. But she didn't do that. See, self-pity and a martyr spirit keep us acting out the victim role. I want you to write that down because it's so important. See, any time we're in self-pity and a martyr spirit, that keeps us acting out the role of a victim. Now, have you ever seen one who feels mistreated over having so much work dumped on them and no one else seems to be helping them? And so in, instead of doing what they can and not worrying about the rest, what do they do many times? I've seen people who will throw themselves into the task in anger and hurt and, and self-pity and maybe they'll work through the noon hour and then work through the dinner hour and, and on into the night. You know, I'm just making a big ordeal over the fact that no one cares how hard I'm having to work. And we need to watch for that because that's a martyr spirit that's working along with the self-pity, keeping us in a role of a victim. Okay, let me give you another characteristic. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 4. There are so many little interesting characteristics that can let us notice that self-pity is present like I said, once we recognize it, then we'll usually do something about it.
1: Okay, now some
0: people don't think of anger as being a companion spirit with self-pity. But anger and unforgiveness now are always involved with self-pity. We need to realize that any time there's a spirit of self-pity operating, then someone has not been forgiven. Now, it could be that we've not forgiven ourselves or could be that we've not forgiven God, but somebody hasn't been forgiven. And sometimes even a root of bitterness, you know, is there. Okay, now let me show you a prime example of anger and bitterness evolving out of this self-pity. In chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now the man had relations with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again she gave birth to her son Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a teller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance failed. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. And so Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about that when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said... What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Okay, now the Bible lets us know that there is no partiality with God. So we know that God wasn't just showing partiality here when he said he was going to accept Abel's offering and not Cain's. So we know that there is a problem on Cain's part that his offering was not acceptable. Now some people think it's because it was not a blood sacrifice. And that could be part of it. But Cain was a farmer. And later we do know that grain offerings were acceptable, you know, at certain times. So we have to realize from the content of this story that there were some wrong motives. There were some wrong attitudes in Cain's heart. And this does become pretty evident when we see his reaction. Because, see, an humble heart would have gotten on their face before God and would have said, Lord, what is it in me that's keeping my offering from being accepted, you know? What have I done? But see, we don't see any soul searching here. We don't see Cain asking God for the reason for the refusal of his offering. Instead, he just feels sorry for himself. You know, poor me. How mistreated, you know, how unfairly I've been dealt with. Abel's offering was accepted, but God wouldn't accept mine. And I want you to notice that that inner turmoil showed up on his face. See, in the last part of verse 6, it tells us, that why has your countenance fallen? And then in verse seven, he said, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Now remember, we said earlier that self pity always makes itself known. And one way that self pity makes itself known is by the look on our face. You know, if you're in self pity, I promise you it's going to show on your countenance. So we need to check our countenance because it's an open door to sin. And in verse seven, God has spoken to Cain, and he's told him that sin's crouching at the door, so you master it. So this tells me that God is saying, hey, when I point these things out to you, he's telling us that we're the one that's supposed to master it. We're to take authority over it. Now, self-pity can become a sin of murder in the heart. If you remember, Jesus said, if you're angry with your brother, you've already murdered him in your heart. Now, Cain acted it out. But we can be just as guilty... When we think that we've been rejected, if we get into all this anger and we think somebody else has been accepted and wonderful things are happening to them and look what's going on in my life and I've done so many things right. And when we get into that mode of thinking and we let that anger build, then we're going to find that self-pity will have no boundaries if it's left unharnessed. And self-pity in this case turned into jealousy and it turned into anger and finally murder. Okay, let's look at another clue that can help us recognize self-pity. I want you to turn First Kings 19. Now, Elijah has just had this wonderful victory up on Mount Carmel. He and God have defeated Baal worship, and they've killed 450 of the prophets of Baal. They've also killed all the prophets of the Asheron. You would think that Jezebel would have been frightened when she gets the news that all of her prophets have been slaughtered. But instead of getting frightened, she puts the fear in Elijah. And the Bible tells us that he runs for 40 days and 40 nights and hides in the cave at Mount Horeb. And we don't think much about this until we realize that she's up north in a northern part of Israel. And he runs all the way through the country of Israel, all the way through the south, and into the desert, Mount Sinai, the desert Sinai, where the children of Israel had come in their wilderness wandering. And he goes all the way down to the mountain where the Ten Commandments were given to Moses. And so finally, we see in verse 9 that God speaks to him and he said, Elijah, what are you doing here? In other words, Elijah, you were up north, you were having this wonderful victory, I've given you the victory over all the prophets of Baal. What on earth are you doing here? And instead of answering God's question and saying, well, I got in fear and I ran from my life. What a fool I've been. We find instead he starts justifying his action. And he starts pouring out all this, oh, woe is me. Look at verse 10. In verse 10 he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the Lord of hosts. He said, I've been so zealous for you, Lord. And he said, all the other children of Israel, they've forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with a sword. And he said, I'm the only one left. There's no one else. I'm by myself. I'm the only one that still trusts you and, and still lives for you. And now they're trying to seek my life. They're even trying to kill me. So he's saying, oh, poor me. Look what all they've done. They've done it so wrong. And look how I've done it. I've tried to do it right. And what good has it done? In the last part of verse 13, God asked him the question all over again. Elijah, what are you doing here? It's almost like God just completely ignored what Elijah said to him. But you know, what does Elijah do? You know, instead of letting that remind him that, oh, God didn't particularly like the the answer that I gave the first time, he goes through the whole self-pity spiel again. You know, says the whole thing to him again. You know, oh, Lord, I've been zealous for you, for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. I alone him left and now they're, they're trying to kill me. He goes through that whole thing. Okay, a person in self-pity always tries to justify his actions. If you'll remember, the older brother justified his actions. The Cain justified the fact that he had killed his brother. And now Elijah is trying to justify his self-pity. Now, we're always going to find ourselves justifying and giving excuses for our bad behavior when we're feeling sorry for ourselves. Anytime we feel sorry for ourselves, we're going to find some excuse to make ourselves think that it's okay. Even try to convince other people that it's okay, that we're in this self-pity. We deserve to have this self-pity party. And something else now that's a telltale sign here of Elijah's self-pity, is that he goes over and over and over his, oh, poor me, story. Now, if you think about it, every time you've been mistreated, you'll find yourself wanting to tell it over and over. So that's a good telltale sign. If we find ourselves telling it more than once to, especially if we're telling it over and over to the same person, then we need to look for self-pity. Now, every person that I know who's been victimized by something or someone and has chosen to stay in that victim role will tell you their story over and over, and they'll tell it to practically anyone that will listen. Well, what if it is real? You know, what if the thing that's been done to us is real and we have truly been, you know, mistreated and misjudged? What then? Okay, what if it's justified and we've been sincerely done wrong? Well, I'm going to tell you, it doesn't matter how real the hurt may be. It doesn't matter how justified we are in the way we feel. As long as we continue to see ourselves as a victim, as long as we stay in that self-pity, we are never going to get healed. Now, Job is probably the best classic example of that that I can give you. Something on the inside had to happen in Job's life before his circumstances could ever change. And he had some bad circumstances. Now, his symptoms were real. And the things that had happened to him would knock almost any person down. He was covered with these horrible boils. He had open sores all over his body that oozed, and he was in constant anguish and constant pain. But he got into the depth of self-pity. Now, Job could have written a book on self-pity, and actually, when you read the book of Job, I would say that it could be called the book of self-pity until he gets to the last chapters. But I'm going to quote just a few lines from Job chapter 7, so you'll see what I'm talking about. He said, my flesh is clothed with worms, and it's also clothed with a crust of dirt. My skin hardens and runs. My eyes will never see good again. Now, that's a real self-pity spirit. Nothing's ever going to be good again. Therefore, he said, I am not going to restrain my mouth. In other words, he said, I have a right to talk about it. These horrible things have happened, and I've got a right to tell you how bad I've been mistreated. He said, I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. In other words, he said, this is true, so I'm going to say it. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. And then he says, my bed will comfort me. My couch will ease my complaint. Okay, now this is another typical example of what self-pity likes to do. You know, it likes to go to bed and pull the cover up over its head. Have you ever felt that way, you know, when you felt like everything was going wrong and you were being so mistreated? There's nothing that can make our flesh feel more comfortable than going to bed, pulling the cover up over our head, and having our little pity party right there in the bed. You know, and that's exactly what he said. My bed will comfort me, and we've all been there. See, and what that is, is a form of escape. So another characteristic of self-pity is wanting to escape. And then he goes on to say, poor me, why even pray, because God's not going to hear me anyway. You know, I think maybe we've been a little bit hard on Job's wife when, you know, when she told him, why don't you just curse God and die? She probably had heard all the self-pity that she could stand. She had been hearing this for 30 chapters, and she probably thinks, I can't stand this one more moment. You know, why don't you just curse God and get it over with? I think Job's really fortunate that his wife didn't do the job for him and put him out of his misery. So, you know, but he finally, we're going to find out that at the end, he does retract, and repent. But there's hundreds now of poor me, self-pity statements that we need to watch for. I want to just name a few to watch for. No one cares. Have you ever said that? Nobody cares. Or maybe they always get their way. Have you ever said that? Nothing ever works for me. Or I'm never going to trust another person as long as I live. Everybody lets me down. Or I've tried and I just can't do it. Do you remember the classic self-pity statement that Jonah made when the storm came up at sea? This is a classic self-pity statement. He said, it's all my fault. Just get rid of me, kill me, and all your troubles is going to be over. Throw me in the ocean and you'll be okay. Okay. You know, have you ever heard that where somebody said, well, if I died, if I was just out of your life, well, oh, you'd be so much better off. Okay. Don't ever say that. That is a classic self-pity statement. Just don't say that. A person in self-pity wants to tell you how low they are and how badly they feel and how badly they've mistreated so that you'll comfort them and so that you'll brag on them. But see, usually by the time that a person is in that much self-pity, that self-pity is so repulsive that no one wants to compliment them when they're in the middle of that. You know, you just want to get away from them. Now, self-pity pretends to hide, but it's always going to rear its ugly head any time we get into a weakened condition. You know, maybe it's times when we're feeling really badly or maybe when we're sick or maybe when we're extremely tired. You're going to find out if you've let self-pity stay there, then when those times of weakness come, you're going to find out that that self-pity is always going to rear its head. And a self-pity spirit now will always try to pull other people in to join the ranks because it's seductive. And that's another characteristic that you need to put down. It's very seductive. And sometimes... Our self-pity will cause another person to do something wrong just simply because they feel sorry for us. Sometimes if a person feels sorry for someone, they'll almost help that person stay in their self-pity because they become an enabler. Okay, a perfect example was the children of Israel. You know, they were going through the wilderness and they were murmuring and they were complaining and it spread like wildfire throughout the entire million people. Because they were in self-pity. And see, self-pity is just exactly like the leavening in bread. Because it spreads and it affects the whole loaf. That's what happened. They were feeling so sorry for themselves. And as one person would complain, then another person would complain. And finally, all two million of the people were complaining. And the reason they were in self-pity is because they weren't looking at the miracles. And they were not looking at the blessings that God had given to them. See, they completely disregarded the blessings. They completely disregarded the miracle of the manna. And instead of being thankful that God didn't just leave them to fend for themselves and die, you know, Numbers 11 says that the children of Israel wept bitterly. And they said, oh, we remember the fish and the garlic and the leeks, the onions and the, you know, all the cucumbers and the melons. We remember all those wonderful things that we had in Egypt. And now all we have is just this old manna. See, when we fail to be thankful for the blessings we have and when we just moan because of what we don't have, we need to realize that is a symptom of self-pity. Okay, now I've given you a lot of ways to recognize it. There probably are many more, but those are some of the ways to recognize self-pity. And I'm going to very quickly now give you nine quick things to overcome it. Number one, in a morbid sort of way, self-pity can feel good to the one that's in it. In a morbid sort of way, that self-pity can feel good. And the reason it feels good is because it's feeding our old flesh nature. And what does God say about the flesh nature? In Romans 8, verse 6, it says, The mind set on the flesh is death. That's true. The mind set on the flesh is death. Self-pity is flesh. So, number one, we have to refuse to give in to the flesh. You know, that flesh is crucified. We need to keep it buried. Now... Treat self-pity thoughts just exactly like you would treat symptoms of sickness. See, if sickness hits your body, then you've been taught not to go by your feelings. You've been taught to quote that word. You've been taught to take authority over that sickness. You know exactly what to do if sickness hits. Okay, do exactly the same thing with self-pity symptoms. Now, it is fine to say, yes, I have been hurt, and yes, it was unfair, And they did do me wrong, but no, I am not going to receive that self-pity. See, I'm not saying that we have to deny the wrong. But we do have to deny our flesh the comfort of talking about it and going into self-pity. Now, also remember that the battle's in the mind. And if you get the victory over this, and then later you turn around and decide that you're going to think on that hurt again, And you're going to recall how badly, you know, you've been mistreated. Then you're going to find out that you've just given it permission to come back in. Okay, number two. Refuse to allow yourself to justify the self-pity. Many, many pain-inspired decisions have come out of self-pity. And they never bring good fruit. You know, I am never going to trust a man again as long as I live. You know, or I'm, I'm never going to make myself vulnerable again or I'm never going back to that church. You know, pain inspired decisions and we feel justified because we've been wronged. Now, Nathan confronted David with his sin and I want you to notice that David never once tried to justify himself. He repented immediately when Nathan came and he never went back to the sin. Okay, number three. Now, since we saw that anger is often involved in self-pity, then we need to allow the anger to become an alarm system for us. It needs to be a signal. We need to take that misplaced anger and turn that anger over on the enemy of self-pity. We have to realize what self-pity will do to us and get angry at what the enemy's trying to do, that the enemy's trying to destroy us. Be angry enough to use your authority. Okay, number four, watch out for comparisons. See, in the prodigal son story, the older brother's whole grievance came from comparing himself to what had been done for him versus what he thought had been done for the younger brother. He felt like he had come out on the the short end of a stick. Now, self-pity loves to compare when it feels like it's been done wrong. And some people will compare themselves to someone else and and they fall short. Maybe they see themselves as, as not as good-looking or maybe not as smart. And so they get into self-pity because they feel like they fall short in the comparison. And then there are others like this older brother who look around and they find someone who is not behaving as good as they think they're behaving. And yet that other person seems to be better off. And so they get into self-pity because they think they've gotten a raw deal. Listen, if that older brother had wanted to compare himself to someone, he should have compared himself to the father And then been determined that he was going to be as faithful and forgiving as his father was. Okay, number five. To get rid of self-pity, start counting your blessings. I can't give you a better suggestion than this one. It will bring a halt to self-pity in a hurry the moment we start meditating all the wonderful things that God's done for us. You need to keep a notebook and just write everything that God does. Okay, number six. Remember that the father told the other brother, we have to rejoice. The boy was dead and he's alive again. Now, you're going to find that self-pity does not rejoice with those that are rejoicing because it's having its own self-party. So, when we rejoice with someone else, that's outward instead of self and it wasn't a matter now that the older brother was being asked to rejoice with his little brother. He was just being asked to, to rejoice with the father, to share in the father's happiness. Okay, number seven. Job came out of his self-pity when he repented and when he retracted all of those horrible self-pity confessions that he had been making. See, self-pity is going to make you make all kinds of bad confessions. And we have to be honest and open and humble enough to let God show us where we're wrong and then repent and change what we're saying. We need to put a guard on our mouths. Okay, number eight. Job prayed for his friends. And when he prayed for his friends, he was reaching out to do something for someone else and that self-pity lifted. I mean, it sounds like a different man after he prayed for his friends. When all of a sudden you, you read about Job, it's a different man that you're reading about. Because that's causing us to reach out, do something for someone else. Focus outward. Okay, number nine. David was a prime target for self-pity. Saul had been trying to kill him. He had to run for his life. He had to hide in caves just to stay alive. He came back to Ziklag. All of his tents had been burned. All the women and children had been taken, and even his mighty men were threatening to stone him. Now, he would have been a prime candidate for self-pity. But what he did is one of the best things that anyone can do for staying out of self-pity. It says that he ran and he strengthened himself in the Lord. In other words, he ran to God. He asked God to right the situation. Now self pity is a self indulgence and a self centeredness that shuts God out, and when it shuts God out, then it tears down all of our creativity. You're gonna find in self pity there is no creativity because we've got ourselves walled away from God. Now running to God and strengthening oneself in God is one powerful way to drive off the self pity. I'm just gonna name these quickly crucify the flesh, refuse to nurse and rehearse all the hurts. Quit justifying our behavior, even if we have been done wrong. Turn that anger on the self-pity and drive it away. Count our blessings. Rejoice with those that are being blessed, knowing that our time is going to come. When we rejoice with other people, then there's going to come a time they're going to rejoice with us. Seek God so that we can see through God's eyes and then start cleaning up all those self-pity statements. See self-pity as a sin. Repent. Like God said, it's crouching at the door. Take authority over it. Reach out to somebody else. Now, I'm going to tell you what. These nine steps, they're a sure-fire method of getting rid of self-pity. I mean, I promise you, those nine steps will get rid of any self-pity in your life. But better yet, those nine steps are the steps for staying out of self-pity. We'll just do them ahead of time. that so We can keep the self-pity out in the first place. Father, I thank you that Lord, you're so willing to show us the things that would cause destruction. And nothing causes much more destruction than self-pity. And so, Father, I just pray that instead of hiding from it and ignoring it, I pray, Father, that we will allow you to point it out. We will allow you to bring us to it face-to-face. And then we'll run to you, even as David did, and be strengthened in you and, and allow you, Lord, to take care of ...of these areas. Father, there are some people who have truly been hurt. There are some people, even as Job, that things have not gone right in their life. But, Father, I thank you that you are the one that can bring a victory out of the ash pile. Father, I thank you that you can cause us to become victorious in spite of what the enemy's done. So, Father, instead of running to the self-pity, help us, Lord, that we'll run to you. And that we'll apply these nine steps... And we'll see the victory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Please share this teaching with anyone you think it would minister to. If you would like to listen to more in-depth teachings, please sign up for our Psalm 91 family at PeggyJoyceRuth.org.